Thank you for that beautiful song to start us off for our message. Uh, If you've been here the past two weeks, uh, you should know where we're going to be, Habakkuk 3. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can be opening to Habakkuk 3 now. Uh, And if I'm honest, uh, I would love to be able to spend like two more weeks just in this chapter. Uh, This is the most important chapter of the book of Habakkuk, and it is so deep in its history and in its worship that we could spend a lot of time here. However, I am so grateful that pastor is coming back because in the Lord's timing, and this is how the Lord worked it out, uh, this past week I have been moving from an apartment to my new home in Pine Grove. And so in the midst of all of that, I've had to balance all of these messages as well. And frankly, I am tired. So I am very grateful that I'm going to get a break and that pastor will be back to be in the pulpit once again come next week. And so to recap what happened in Habakkuk 2, the Lord spoke to his prophet regarding Babylon's destruction. He made it very, very clear that Babylon is going to be destroyed. They are not going to be forgotten. Uh, They are not going to be excused. They will be dealt with. They and their empire will be plundered. They and their empire will be burned to nothing. They will drink of the Lord's wrath and their idols, all of those hunks of wood and metal and stone, will not save them. But the message wasn't just about Babylon's destruction because the Lord has also redirected Habakkuk's view from Habakkuk's surroundings to himself. To the Lord, whose glory will fill the earth as water fills the ocean. To the Lord, before whom the whole earth, all of creation, will be silent in awe. And so what we're going to read in Habakkuk 3 is a psalm in every sense of that word. It is a highly poetic song that is on par with the 150 psalms that fill the book of songs. And what I, what I want us to get from Habakkuk 3, really, what I want you to get from this entire series we've done is this. The joy and strength necessary to navigate any circumstance is found in the God of your salvation. If you have not been paying attention to me at all for these past three weeks, that is what I want you to go home with. The joy and strength necessary to navigate any circumstance is found in the God of your salvation. When we get to the end of Habakkuk 3, probably what most people are most familiar with, with the entire book of Habakkuk, that is where Habakkuk ends up. So hopefully you're in Habakkuk 3 by now, and Habakkuk begins with a note as Habakkuk responds in prayer. Chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. There should be a word that jumps out to you in that verse uh, because it's not an English word. It's this word, Shigianoth. There is only one other place a word similar to Shigianoth appears, and it's not actually a verse. It's a title. If you flip to Psalm 7, and if you're familiar at all with any of the psalms, you know that some of them have titles, and they're usually musical directions, or they are in some way telling the reader 
the context of the psalm they're about to read. Well, Psalm 7 has a title, and it says this, A Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. These are the only two places where we see this word. Shigeonoth is plural, Shigeon is singular, and to be honest with you, we don't know what this word means. That is why it reads Shigeonoth. Uh, this word is transliterated. There, that's different than translated. Let me give you an example. We know what the Hebrew word for day is. It is the word yom. That's how you would pronounce it. And we have an English word, day. So when we figured out that this Hebrew collection of letters meant day, we had a word that we could attach to it in English that was day, so that when you read Genesis 1, for example, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, because we translated it. This word shigianoth, we don't know what it means. So we don't know what word it attaches to in the English language. So it's not translated, it's transliterated. To continue with the day example, it would be like we don't know what this Hebrew word yom means. From the context and all the uses, we can't figure it out. So if you were to open Genesis 1, what you would read is the first yom, the second yom, the third yom. Because the best that we can do is take the Hebrew script, figure out how they pronounce it, and then spell out that pronunciation in a language you recognize, English. This is the case with a lot of Hebrew song words. It's why you see quite a few words that aren't English words in the Psalms. Because when it comes to Hebrew music, especially ancient Hebrew music, we really don't know what it sounded like, how it was played, what the words were. And so Shigianoth is an example of that. But we do have a guess as to what it means. And much like when we looked in Habakkuk 2 at the taunt songs, it's important to understand what kind of literature we're about to read. Our best guess for what a Shigianoth is, or what a Shigeon is, is that it is a type of wild, passionate, emotional song or poem. It is believed to come from the root word in Hebrew for the verb go astray. The idea being that what we're about to read or chapters that are considered Shigeon don't follow the conventional rules of poetry. They don't follow the conventional rules of song in Hebrew religious practice. Shigeon are also, also known as diathrimbic. They are, they are diathrims. The definition of a diathrim is a poem or composition of impassioned or exalted theme or irregular form. Any wildly enthusiastic speech or writing. So what we're about to read is a emotional, wild, passionate freestyle, so to speak, of Habakkuk, where he's not following the conventions of Hebrew poetry or Hebrew song. And this wild, passionate song is filled with allusions and references to the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the book of Psalms. There are 25 different psalms referenced in 19 verses. That is one out of every six psalms is referenced in Habakkuk 3. And some of them are referenced multiple times. 
There are also 11 references to events that take place in Exodus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, which is the story of the Hebrew people leaving Egypt and getting to the edge of the Promised Land. The Song of Moses in Exodus 15, when they triumph over the Egyptian army because they have been destroyed in the Red Sea, is referenced three times. The blessing of Moses, the last recorded speech of Moses over the tribes of Israel, is referenced twice. What, what I want you to get from this is that this wild, passionate song is steeped in Hebrew history and in Hebrew worship of their God. And I want to kind of take this moment as an aside because the songs that Habakkuk knows, those official songs, the Psalms, are what influences how he reacts to the Lord and to his circumstances. And I want to take a moment to just talk about the music you listen to when it comes to worship. There's a lot of worship music out there and a lot of it is garbage. A lot of it is not very good. Hymns tend to be pretty safe because they've stood the test of time. We sing some hymns that are three, four hundred years old. They don't stick around unless they have amazing theology. And contemporary music can also have amazing theology. There are tons and tons of artists and groups that put out amazingly deep and rich theological songs. So it's not a hymns versus contemporary music thing. It is, is this correct theology or is this not? Because if Habakkuk had the wrong theology, if Habakkuk was listening to the wrong worship music, we would not have Habakkuk 3. He would most likely not respond to his situation the way he does here. But because he is listening to music and he is familiar with the songs that have the right theology, they're literally in the Bible, he finds that strength he finds those reminders. He finds the words that he needs to put into this psalm that he writes for himself. So it is a passionate song steeped in the history of Israel and the worship of the Lord. Verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk has heard the report of the Lord. Judah is going to be judged. Babylon is going to be judged. And Habakkuk is left in fear and awe of what God is going to do, of the power of God. But Habakkuk 2 isn't the only thing that Habakkuk knows about the Lord. It is the newest revelation to Habakkuk, but it is not the only revelation to Habakkuk. He has a whole history of revelation to look at at this point. Now, verse 2 is technically the only verse in Habakkuk 3 that actually contains prayers. At least how we would understand them of asking God to do something. And there's two in this verse. The first prayer, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. Habakkuk prays for the Lord's work to be revived in his days. This is something that God has promised to do. When God first, first spoke to our prophet in Habakkuk 1 verse 5, he told them that God is doing something in his days. But the question is, what work is Habakkuk referring to? Well, there's a psalm, and we read it as our congregational reading, which, by the way, I was on top of that this week. I actually got that done. Points for me. Um, 
there is a psalm that references the work that the Lord has done, and it's Psalm 44. So you can turn with me there, and we will read the first three verses. Psalm 44, verses 1 to 3, is the other psalm that talks about the work of the Lord, that uses this phrasing. Verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples, then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them." The work that is mentioned in Psalm 44 is a reference to the work that the Lord did in getting his people to the promised land. All of those massive displays of power as the Lord went before his people as a warrior and protected them until they occupied the promised land. And this is a reoccurring theme in Habakkuk 3. The mighty works of the Lord. So Habakkuk's first prayer is a revival. Revive your saving work for your people. Habakkuk's second prayer is much shorter, and it is the end of verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy, which is a prayer that I have prayed more than once for this nation. It is a very, very simple prayer. Habakkuk knows that Judah's judgment is coming. In fact, that's the, that's the next thing that he's been told about. But his prayer isn't, take it back. His prayer isn't, oh God, change your mind, because I don't like that answer. His prayer is, in your wrath, remember mercy. When the Babylonians come and they punish Judah, lessen the devastation. And when the Babylonians stay and they occupy our nation, shorten their reign. In other words, make the punishment lesser. Not because we've deserved it, not because we're super great, but because you're merciful. So Habakkuk's two prayers, having heard all that the Lord is going to do in Habakkuk 1 and in Habakkuk 2, is, Lord, revive your saving work and be merciful to me, a sinner. That is what Habakkuk prays for in light of what he knows is coming. And then Habakkuk transitions from prayer into what we would call a psalm. So Habakkuk first responds in prayer to what God had said in Habakkuk 2. And now Habakkuk recalls God's work in verse 3 to 15. And again, Habakkuk 3 to 15 is what we would call a psalm. It would fit that description. And we know that this psalm, Habakkuk 3, was beloved by the people of God. And the reason we know that is because when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written about 600 years after Habakkuk, right around the time of Jesus Christ, so they're now about 2,000 years old, they had multiple copies of the book of Habakkuk. The community that left behind the Dead Sea Scrolls drew a lot of strength and encouragement from Habakkuk 3. It was one of their favorite songs. So this psalm is a beloved psalm that we're going to read. And we're just going to read the first half of verse 3. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. 
Habakkuk here is beginning to orient us. This word taman, uh, it can mean two things depending on the context. One, such as when Jeremiah speaks out against the country of Edom in Jeremiah 49, Taman is the capital city of Edom. That, that was one of their prominent cities. The other thing Taman can mean in context is just south. And the reason Edom, the capital city, is called Taman, and the word for south is also Taman, is because if you look at a map of Judah, Edom is south. It's, it's really that simple. Mount Paran goes by a much more common name, one that you are all much more familiar with, Mount Sinai. So Habakkuk in Judah right now would be north of Mount Sinai. And so what he has told us in verse 3 is that God comes from the south and the Holy One from Mount Sinai. He is telling us that the Lord is approaching and then he puts in this word, Selah. Again, Selah is not an English word. It is another Hebrew musical term. And again, it is transliterated because we don't know what it means. But this one, we have quite a few guesses on. Uh, I can't say with 100% certainty any of these are the correct one. But here are some guesses as to what Selah means. Guess number one. Uh, it is a pause for silence or musical interlude. So the singers are to stop singing and there is to be a pause. Guess number two. It is a signal that the congregation is to sing or recite or that the congregation is to fall prostrate. Guess number three is that it is a signal for the symbols to crash. Guess number four is that this word, Selah, is what the audience would shout back at certain times in response to the song. Guess number five is that it is a call that the singers are to sing in a higher pitch or that they are to sing louder. Again, I can't tell you which one of those is the right answer, but I can tell you how I always read this word, Selah. I always read this word as pause. I always read this word as a signal to tell the audience to reflect on what was said, to pause and think about what they just heard. And what the audience would have just heard is that God is coming that the Holy One is approaching from Mount Sinai. And the Jewish audience would have a very clear picture of Mount Sinai. Because that is where Moses receives the law. That is where Moses first receives his call to go to Egypt in the burning bush. That is where God comes down on the mountain in fire and lightning and thunder and trumpet and earthquake. These are the images that would call up Sinai. And so Habakkuk tells us the Holy One is coming. Pause. And then we get to the back half of verse 3, all the way to the front half of verse 9. Verse 3, His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. Verse 4, His radiance is like the sunlight, and He has rays flashing from His hand, and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence, and plague comes after Him. Verse 6, he stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kashan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? 
Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. I want you to think of Habakkuk 3 as a roller coaster. Every time we hit Selah, it's like you just went down the hill and you were having your blast. Hopefully your hands were up because that's the rule if you go on a roller coaster. Your hands have to be up. And you were shaking all around. You're moving all around. And then all of a sudden you hear chunk as it begins to pull you up the hill again to go down once again. That's what every Selah is, is that it's a pause between all of the action. And there is a ton of action here. Habakkuk here is painting a brilliant picture for us as the Lord approaches. As the Lord approaches, according to the back half of verse 3, his splendor and glory covers the heavens and the earth is filled with his praise. The first thing that people notice about the Lord's approach is his glory and his splendor, but it does not stop there. After his glory, after his splendor, which is radiant like the sun, after this display of his power, these rays flashing from his hand, which is a reference to lightning bolts, which again are a clear symbol of divine power. Then comes pestilence and plague. Verse 5. This word pestilence has the idea of any epidemic disease with a high death rate. And the reference here, the allusion here is to the 10th plague when the firstborn in all of Egypt died. This word plague is translated in the King James as burning coals. And the allusion, the reference here, is to God's judgment on his complaining people in the wilderness. In Numbers 11, it is stated that God's anger was kindled and that his anger burned among them. Now, in post-COVID, we don't tend to like to associate God with pestilence and plague, but Habakkuk does it here very naturally. In the middle of talking about God's power, he brings up the fact that God is the one who sends the plague and the pestilence. God is the one who sends that as a tool of judgment and a tool of justice, of punishment on sin. This is something we see in the Egyptian plagues. This is something that we see all throughout history. There have been really devastating plagues. And the Lord uses those things. They are not outside of his power. In fact, they are a clear sign of his power. And then verse 6, he stands and surveys the earth. He looks and startles the nations. He looks and the perpetual mountains, the ancient hills are shattered. With a look, the foundations of the earth shatter. The imagery here points us to earthquakes, which would be, again, another display of God's immense power. That with a look, he causes the nations to tremble, he causes the mountains and the hills to shatter. As for the, the nations being startled here, the reference goes all the way back to Joshua. It goes back to Joshua chapter 2. When Rahab first speaks with the Hebrew spies, she talks about how the fear of the Israelites have fallen on all the people, and the people have melted away. So the Lord, as he approaches in his great power, 
is terrifying the nations. The mountains quake in an earthquake. The nations tremble. The mountains are shattered. This is the Lord's power. And this fear-inducing power is an established way of the Lord. His ways are everlasting. And then in verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. We don't really know where Kushan is. In fact, they're not brought up very often in the Bible. We believe that they're related to Midian because when they're brought up here, they're included with Midian. And we know quite a bit about Midian in the Old Testament. Midian was south of Edom, and Midianites were one of the first people that Moses defeated as they travel in the wilderness wanderings, and that Joshua defeated once they're in the Promised Land. So naturally, as the Lord approaches from Mount Sinai and all of these signs of power are happening, Midian and Kushan, being kind of first in line to meet the Lord in this state, would be terrified of that. They are trembling. Uh, the New Living Translation, I'm sorry, they are startled. The New Living Translation puts it as overwhelmed by trouble. Or the New English Translation puts it as overwhelmed by trouble. The King James says that they are in affliction. Mountains tremble, nations tremble, and not even the water is safe. And Habakkuk kind of phrases verse 8 as a, it seems like a silly question at the start. Was God mad at water? That's, that's kind of how the question in verse 8 is phrased. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea? But there are many references here. Was, you could ask the question, uh, when God turned the Nile to blood in Exodus 7, was it because he was mad at the Nile River? When God ripped the Red Sea right down the middle in Exodus 14, was it because he was mad at the Red Sea? When Joshua is standing at the Jordan River and he rips the Jordan River in half and gives the Israelites a path to go through, in Joshua chapter 3, was it because he was mad at the Jordan River? No, the answer is no. He was not mad at water. These were all acts of salvation. That is why God rode on his chariots, his chariots of salvation. And then verse 9, your bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn, Selah. Right before our pause, we see that this Lord who has all of this power, lightning bolts, earthquakes, can rip the oceans or the seas and the rivers in half who causes the nations to tremble, also has a weapon. Your bow was made bare. The New English translation says after that, that the Lord has commissioned his arrows. When the, when the Bible ever talks about the Lord's arrows, almost every single time it's referring to a lightning bolt. And this would fit, was already said in verse 4, this would fit what's going to be said is in verse 11, and then we have our pause. We have reached the next hill in the roller coaster to catch our breath. In verse 3, before the pause, the Lord was approaching. In verse 9, before the pause, this Lord that has all of this power also is armed. 
He is outfitted for war. And that is what we are to reflect on as we go up the hill and then the pause ends and we go crashing down the hill once again in the roller coaster. Habakkuk chapter 3, the back half of verse 9 all the way to verse 13. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. The imagery begun in verse 9. The Lord and his arrows, the Lord and his lightning bolts is continued in the back half of verse 9. Where the Lord cleaves the earth with rivers. What we see here is a storm. The New English translation, I actually really like the way it puts, you cleave the earth with rivers. It just puts it out there. You cause flash floods on the earth's surface. So the, the image here in verse 9 is of lightning, which comes from thunderstorms, and such heavy rains in the wilderness that it causes flash flooding. And if you've ever seen documentaries on what happens when a desert gets drowned in rain, you get some of the most violent and powerful flooding the earth ever sees. And this flooding is so violent, it's so powerful, that the mountains quake. So now it's not just a powerful thunderstorm with torrential rain and thunder and lightning and flooding. Now it's also mudslides as the mountains themselves quake and shake at the rushing waters. Again, these are all pictures that Habakkuk is drawing up for us on the Lord's power. But even the sun and moon are not safe. Right now we've kind of been sticking to the earth. Even the sun and moon are affected by this. Sun and moon stood in their places. This is a reference, again, to Joshua. In this case, it is a reference to Joshua 10, when Joshua had his victory over the Gibeonites. If you remember, Joshua prays that the Lord stops the sun in place. And that phrase right there has confused so many commentators for so long. And the Lord obliges, and the sun stands still so that the Israelites have more daylight to punish the Gibeonites, to have victory over the Gibeonites in Joshua 10. So then, at the time of Joshua that Habakkuk is looking back to, the sun and moon stood still. Now that the Lord has come like a warrior, the sun and moon flee. They run in terror. And their fleeing is understandable because, according to verse 12, the Lord is angry. He is furious. In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. In anger the Lord marches and tramples, which is literally the word threshes, the earth and the nations. This imagery is violent on purpose. It is the imagery of one who is crushing and stomping and threshing and trampling. For those of you that might not know what threshing is, 
If you were a small-scale farmer and you brought in your wheat, to thresh your wheat, you would stomp on it. You would walk around and you would stomp on it, and that would break the plant up so that you could get to the grain in the wheat, the stuff that you wanted to use. If it was a larger-scale operation, you would have your animals pull what was known as a threshing sledge. It would be wood or stone or metal that you would then put extra weights on. And the animal would pull this sledge and it would go across your wheat and it would crush the wheat under the weight. The image here is that of a farmer crushing wheat under his heel. But instead of a farmer and wheat, it is God and the nations. It is God trampling and stomping on the nations who are powerless to do anything to him. And why is the Lord angry? Why has he come out with spear and arrow? It is to save his people. Verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. That phrase, thigh to neck, is the idea that you start at the thigh and you do not stop till you get to the neck. It is, it is the imagery of just cutting somebody in half. The Lord is a warrior, and war is not pretty. It is violent. And the Lord is ready to go to war against these nations, against the head of the house of evil, which gives us a hint as to who Habakkuk is going to talk about after the pause. But then we get our pause. We have just read about the Lord's anger, and how he treats the nations as a warrior, how he goes to war, and we pause to catch our breath before we get to what is the greatest achievement of the Lord in salvation history other than sending Jesus Christ as Savior. And it is the greatest act of salvation of the Lord in the Old Testament. Verses 14 and 15. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs, they stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devoured the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. Habakkuk has given us a hint as to what he's talking about when he speaks of the head of the house of evil in verse 13. But in verses 14 and 15, Habakkuk describes an enemy that is destroyed by their own equipment and an enemy who loses their leader. He describes an enemy that sought to oppress Israel and thought that the victory was already theirs. They were already exulting over the Israelites. And then he describes that same enemy as thwarted by the Lord because the Lord tramples on the waters. Hopefully this brings up one very important event for you. The Egyptians racing into the Red Sea to recapture and re-enslave the Hebrew people, and then their chariot wheels start to swerve. Their equipment starts to fail. And their leader, Pharaoh, drives them farther and farther into the Red Sea. And then the Lord, on his chariot, on his horses, tramples the waters, and they close. And it is the greatest act of salvation the Lord performs in the Old Testament. That he saves his people who were defenseless, who were fleeing from the greatest army the world had ever seen. does it completely in his own power. 
This is how Habakkuk ends this section, extolling God's presence, God's power, God's ability as a warrior with his greatest triumph over the head of the house of evil, Pharaoh, when he took his people from slaves to freedom and he saved them from Egypt forever. Habakkuk has recalled the Lord's works and now Habakkuk's faith is restored. Verse 16. I heard in my inward parts tremble that the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. The first half here describes somebody in terror and Habakkuk is in terror. He's in terror because of the report of what's going to happen to Judah. He's in terror because of the report of what's going to happen to Babylon. He's in terror because he has just rehashed all of the works of the Lord. And that same God is the one that's going to punish him or that's going to punish his nation. That's going to punish his people. That's terrifying. That is terrifying for our prophet. And he knows he must wait quietly. He must wait patiently. He must wait patiently for the invasion, and then he must wait patiently for the destruction of the invaders, the Babylonians. But he's not just there twiddling his thumbs, waiting. He's not just there chomping at the bit, waiting for this day to come. Because what we get at the end of Habakkuk, it's probably the passages you're most familiar with in all of the book of Habakkuk, is one of the greatest statements of faith in the entire Bible. Verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments, which again gives us a hint that this was a song. This is the greatest or one of the greatest statements of faith in the entire Bible. Though everything is taken away. Verse 17, there's no produce, there's no fruit, there's no crops, there's no flocks, there's no herd. There's no food, there's no income, there's no security. There's no reason to trust tomorrow. There's no reason to believe that I'm going to see tomorrow. And all of these horrible circumstances are going to come most likely because of the Babylonian invasion, by the way. Yet, though I lose everything, though tomorrow everything changes for the worst, for the absolute worst, I have no security, I have no safety, I have nothing yet. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk is exulting and rejoicing in one thing, the Lord. It is the Lord who gives him strength. And he compares his strength to that of a mountain deer. 
And I don't know if you've ever seen videos of these things. They're crazy. Uh, human mountain climbers would love to be like these goats and like these deer that can do that. You see them walk up a basically vertical surface and they do it easily. They leap and they catch themselves. These are acts that human beings would love to be able to do. But we need all of this equipment because we're not equipped for handling this difficult terrain. But the mountain deer is. The mountain goat is. And it is the Lord who gives Habakkuk strength. And it is the Lord who makes him like those animals so that he can navigate the difficult space. I love the way the New English translation puts it. He enables me to negotiate the rugged terrain. All that stuff that he talked about in verse 17. Though everything should be gone, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will exult in the Lord. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet. And so this is what I want to leave you with. Like I said at the beginning, if you have not been paying attention, if you fell asleep, uh, wake up. Because this is the most important thing from the entire book of Habakkuk. This is the point of the book of Habakkuk. The joy and strength necessary to navigate any circumstance is found in the God of your salvation. Habakkuk in chapter 1 is focused on the evil around him and the evil to come. We open this book up with a man dragged down in his faith so far down that he is questioning God's justice he is questioning God's timing. He is questioning God's plan because he is so sick of the evil that's around him. It starts with a sad and frustrated cry of how long? And then it transitions to a confused and struggling cry of how can you? And it ends with the greatest declaration of faith you could find from a human being. The Lord responds to our prophet, and it's a response of justice and timing that Babylon will be judged. But the Lord also gives Habakkuk a reminder. The righteous live by faith. That is Habakkuk 2.4. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's Habakkuk 2.14. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk 2.20. Habakkuk has had his focus changed. And that is what we read in Habakkuk 3. So his prayer is very, very simple for the Lord. Revive your saving works and be merciful. And that can literally be your prayer, righteous one, in an increasingly evil nation to the Lord every day. O Lord, revive your saving works and be merciful. But his renewed faith allows him to have this wonderful declaration of faith in the end. No matter how bad it gets, Habakkuk is going to rejoice in one thing, the Lord. He will draw his strength to go on from one thing, the Lord. No matter what the circumstances are look, look like, he draws his strength from the God of his salvation. He will faithfully trust the Lord's timing and rely on him for joy and strength. Habakkuk, as one of the righteous, has had his focus changed because now he is focused on the Lord. The one thing that does not change, no matter how much your circumstances change. And that is where he draws his joy and his strength 
to be able to deal with the evil in his nation that he is sickened by, to be, able to, to be able to deal with the punishment that he is going to have to live through when he loses everything. And that same God is our source for our joy and our strength, no matter how bad things get. If you are trying to find joy and strength in your circumstances, you will have a temporary happiness and a temporary strength because your circumstances will change. But if you begin having joy in the Lord and you draw your strength from him and his word and his promises to you and the past of what he has done for you, that is an eternal joy. That is an eternal strength that does not change, that does not go away. And it will last when there is nothing else to find joy or strength in. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the book of Habakkuk. I thank you that this book written 2,600 years ago speaks to our current situation as the righteous living in a nation that is running away from you. And every day we see more and more evil that makes us sick. I pray that during this study, if we started like Habakkuk in chapter 1, that we end like Habakkuk in chapter 3. That we have come to a place where we will trust in your timing. We will trust in your justice. We will continue to pray for our nation. We will continue to ask for your saving works. We will continue to ask for your mercy. But we will trust in you. And it is from you that we will draw our strength and our joy no matter how bad things get. Help us to rely on you for strength and joy, not our circumstances. Help us to have the faith of the prophet Habakkuk. No matter what tomorrow holds, that the one unchanging truth of the universe is you. And that we can find unchanging joy and unchanging strength in you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.